Welcome to our Title Now pop-up webinar. I'm Melissa Murphy with The Fund, and I am relaunching these webinars after a short break. So thanks for tuning in after a while. My plan is to host these webinars monthly instead of weekly. And I like to think that that gives me the opportunity to get the very best speakers on the most interesting topics to you. So that's the challenge that I've given to myself. A quick reminder that we will be pushing the audio content of this webinar out to our podcast, which is also called Title Now. And you can get that podcast through any of the ways that you subscribe to your other podcasts. So sign up. We would love to have you participate in that channel of communication. So today we're going to talk about cyber fraud. Cyber fraud is the number one threat to the title industry. It is the number one threat to your business. And despite that reality, I fear that many folks in our industry have gotten kind of immune to this because they just hear about cyber fraud over and over and over again, and you become just sort of resigned to it. You've, you've created some processes in your office, and you've had your staff do some webinars, or you've talked with them about it, but you're pretty much rolling the dice on whether or not you will become the next victim. And unless you have three, for $500,000 stashed away in your self-insurance fund, you are really taking a chance here. So I'm urging you to refocus on this issue. Now, I know it's been a crazy time. It's been crazy for all of us. You've adapted to the pandemic. You have adapted to sending all of your staff home to work remotely or part of them to work remotely or you've brought some of them back or maybe everyone's back in the office now. You have adapted to new procedures that you needed to create in order to get documents signed, in order to keep the buyers and sellers as safe as possible, to keep yourself safe, to keep your staff safe. All right, you've done all that. Clearly, you've been successful at that because fund members are doing well. The real estate market in Florida is doing very well. So I would urge you to consider that you really do have the space in your head right now to deal with this issue, to take some time to reconsider what your processes are and see if there's something better that you can do. So my guest today is very knowledgeable about this topic, and better yet, he has some really good suggestions for you, steps that you can take, plans that you can create and implement in your office that will give you a much, much better chance of avoiding this disaster. So my guest today is Tom Cronkright. Tom is a fellow attorney up in Michigan. Uh, but he's in the closing business, has pretty much always been in the closing business. He has a title agency, Sun Title, which is a high volume, large agency up in Michigan. 
but he also has a company called Certified that he started several years ago that is in the business of safeguarding money that is transferred in connection with real estate transactions. And through this process, Tom has become one of the real estate industry's leading experts in wire fraud, and he is committed to solving what he calls the largest problem in real estate today. So Tom, thank you for being with us. Melissa, I'm a huge fan of yours and the fun. Thanks for having me. So yes, absolutely. I've enjoyed the right. relationship over the years. So Tom, I think that this is really a complicated issue, complicated challenge for those of us in the title industry. And by complicated, I mean that there's so much information that title agents and attorneys are being bombarded with. And it's because I think the criminals, the fraudsters out there are really improving and honing their skills and their strategies and their methods of being able to infiltrate this closing process. They have such a higher understanding level of what it is we do every day than they did two, three years ago. And so I think that has resulted in some confusion amongst title agents and attorneys about what they can really do to protect their business. Can they outsmart these criminals? So let's talk about how we can make it simpler for title agents and attorneys to get their, their arms around this. No, I, I think it's a great framing of the question. I do agree as a large title agent that you can just get overwhelmed. There's just this fatigue that's setting in this year. You mentioned it, all the change that's taken place personally and professionally as leaders were trying to keep everyone healthy and safe and kind of together as we accommodate you know whatever life is throwing at them and unfortunately the, the the cyber criminals have just leaned in again and said hey here's disruption we're not going to let a good disruption go to waste and i think unfortunately they don't and, and i think unfortunately everything that i'm seeing and hearing from our contacts is will likely double in real estate wire fraud again this year over what we had last year. Last year was a historic year. So, uh, but, but to your point, there's no silver bullet. You'll never get to a state where there is a, you're a hundred percent safe. Okay. That's just that if, if you have a consultant or somebody's telling you that the, the framework and the aperture of this continues to, to, to advance. But the way that I think about it is, to get to work, you think about it in three distinct kind of buckets. One is the people, one is process, and one is technology. The technology, I would argue, are your quickest hits. So when you think about the technology, what you're trying to do is, is my data secure? This is how I think about it. Is my data protected? Is my network secure? And am I keeping from my people the garbage stuff that on a busy Trid Tuesday or month end Friday, they could click on where otherwise they wouldn't because we're just, we're capacity constrained right now. Right. So to the, the quick things there on the technology side is 
And if you don't have an IT team, you have to level up and, and you have to hire a third party that can help specialize and check some of these boxes, right? Let's just talk about the network. Do I have the proper hardware? Do I have firewalls? Do I have virus detection? Do I have the things that at scale are really inexpensive to adopt, but could keep a full, like that's the meltdown type stuff. If you're hit with ransomware, or you have somebody that scrapes your data and sells it on the black web or the dark web, think about it in terms of like $200 a record right now. Between the time you report, you enroll, that's assuming no damage. I mean, this is expensive stuff. So hire a party to say, look, my servers are secure, my network is secure, the way I'm connecting, are my people connecting through VPNs or are they connecting through just their home Wi-Fi? And you have to take it like instance by instance of how are you getting into the system and what is that system able to detect if some anomaly shows up, right? Someone's trying to access from a foreign country or someone's trying to access kind of out of network. And that's how I think about technology. The other, on the software side of technology is just making sure you're running all the updates. Like Microsoft just came out with an update. If you use Adobe, if you use Dotloop or DocuSign, um, putting in multi-factor authentication on all of your email accounts, all your social media, LinkedIn, anything that you're communicating through personally or professionally, it just has to be a mandate across the country. You know, I could in 30 seconds identify if I wanted to target ABC title company or ABC law firm, in 30 seconds you get the full roster of employees and then I could I could approach them on Facebook as a fraudster, or on Insta as a fraudster. Or it, it, it doesn't have to be corporate related where they come in. So my, my question there and my, my comment there is it sounds like if the owner of the company or the managing partner of this law firm takes care of that hardware piece, that technology piece, that security piece, it reduces the amount of traffic that gets through that can distract a closer, distract a paralegal that's the one that is trying to get the deal done. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Oh, 100%. I, I think it, it's hardening, they call it an attack surface, right? So if our attack surface starts out as this wide and we start to implement these, then the surface area is just smaller and smaller. It's never zero but it's smaller and smaller. So as they're trying to come at you, they're missing because the surface area is so small that either they're gonna move on to the next company in their queue, however they queue that up from a workflow, or they, you'll just frustrate them because you have put the things in place that just make it hard for you to become a victim. And that's what I'm saying. So, but I think one of the things, and, and, and I'm an optimist by nature, one of the things we haven't experienced at scale that I think we'll start to see more of is true data breaches. When you think about 1003s, when you think about Patriot forms, when you think about borrower authorization to get a mortgage payoff, when you think about you know disbursement authorization, all that stuff has a PII. And depending on the target, that's a resale of you know six bucks to maybe 35 bucks on the dark web each record. So they've monetized when they take that data, they can quickly monetize that into like real cash or cryptocurrency. So, but to your point, how do I keep junk from out of my network, bad guys out of the network? And how do I keep these things that are just 
either distracting or threatening to my employees outside of their purview. So one of the last things before we move on to any other segment is email monitoring. So if you're not using an email monitoring solution like a Mindcast or an Agari or something like that, I mean, you just have to because these services are, are so well orchestrated now that if, let's say, you know, Old Republic, for example, sees a bad email out in Washington and that email is starting to kind of trigger across the country and I see it in Michigan, it'll already be flagged. Like there's consortium level information that these networks have now to say, hey, it might be a totally different industry, but that was marked as, you know, a fraudulent server that originated it or we know this email is somehow, you know, is somehow intended for, for something bad. So those are the types of things like the, the hardware, the software, the things that you can implement and make sure they're updated is just non-negotiable. The leverage effect that you get from a security perspective is, is just massive. It sounds huge. It is huge, yeah. And if you don't have it, it's just a matter of time, right? So what's the next layer you talked about in terms of buckets, I guess? Yeah, I think the next layer is process. So the next layer in, in, in process blends between technology and people. It kind of sits in the middle. So the process being, hey, if somebody was exposed, somebody dials in from home and they're able to get into the title production software, do they have open access? As a title examiner, should they even be able to access the escrow or the treasury portion of that where they could get to wiring instructions or the initiation of funds transfer? The answer would be no. So even at a user level, like give them the lane that they need to do their job, but close them out of those other rooms where they don't need access anyway or manage those on an exception basis. I think that's one thing. I think the other thing around process is just, do you have the dual authentication and then the controls around the transfer of funds? This is a big one. So let's just speak of like funds transfer. And I'm just talking about wires. I'm talking about incoming checks, outgoing wires, ACHs. Now we're seeing a lot of movement in EMD and commissions. You know, is it one person handling all that? Or do you at least have a second party that someone would release, you know, someone would set up the wire or the payment, someone else would release it. You know, we have a trilateral, the person that works up the file can't, and can't set up the wire or the payment, and then a third party has to release it. So you'd have to have three people kind of in cahoots with one another to divert a funds transfer, if that makes sense. And we're not paranoid, it's just good hygiene, at least have two people. You know, and then, and then the people side of it, that third leg, is really comes down to this culture of like curiosity is are you giving your people enough training and space where they can identify things that just are out of the ordinary and then what do they do with that so one of the drills that we run frequently are, are proactive phishing drills phishing email drills like a no before a lot of companies do this fish me where you actually set up a campaign, you send it to your people, and you see how many people click on the phishing email and what credentials they give. And that's what you use as a baseline to say, hey, we're susceptible in this area because look at the data that came out of, you know, we ran a proactive drill. And then talk about it. If you get phishing emails coming into the organization that are flagged, talk about those. 
right? Just because you may see a fraudster knocking on the door of one of your customers or your referral partners or you yourselves, that you're not a you're not a target any more than any of us are. But you have to have that, you have to bake into a culture that look, we didn't create wire fraud, but we asked to be the center of all of the money transfers. So we have to take a leadership position, or I would argue as an industry, we're gonna lose the right to be the hub of the money transfer. You can't sustain what's going on right now long-term. It's gonna go back to the capital or the financial markets, and we're gonna be left just issuing title policies. That's an excellent point. That, and I've never really thought of this challenge to the industry in that way, but I think that's, that's very meaningful to me. Um, and and just brings home the significance of this. We yeah, are the center of all of the dispersing. We want to do that. We have underwriting guidelines that require that, but that's just all self-imposed. And, and if we don't do our job, and if we don't do, even if it's not our fault, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, we're involved in the transaction and we're sort of you know, we're guilty by association to some degree, at least in terms of not having all of these technologies and processes and procedures and uh, people in place. So, an uh, interesting I, perspective. Well, it, it's one of the biggest levers that I've seen in any industry where, you know, if you've got a $10 million agency, you're moving about $2 billion a year in, in other people's funds. Right. So that's a 200 to one ratio between revenue and the money that you're the custodian of. And we weren't built. We just don't have the insurance. We, we, we just find ourselves lacking some infrastructure to take on now a new threat to safeguard those funds. It's not baked into the closing fee. It's not baked into the title insurance. It's not baked in any of that. And, it, and I just I believe strongly that we have a we have a moment in time to get this right, especially before Ron really takes off and nobody's seeing anybody for real estate closings, that we can say, hey, we we're we're gonna go headstrong, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna take this on, you know, as an industry. The industry will move about two and a half trillion dollars through its escrow accounts this year. That's adult money. So that's a great segue to what um I want to talk about next. And that's it's talking about how do my fund members who are the owners and managers of their companies, how do they lead their company to the right place? How do they lead their people to the place that they need to be? Yeah, I, I think you can take it in, um, if you took it in segments, right? I mean, the, the technology is the easy one that, I say easy one, but you can hire a third party, just scratch the check, get it done, and start down that path to a harder state, that lower attack service. I think that's a that's an easy one. That would kind of run in the background. I think as as you're approaching the process and procedure, I think there's a there's a whole change framework you have to think about. And I think the first start, the first of it is just awareness. Like we have a problem, and we we may not be addressing the problem fully, or we may have we may be susceptible to a loss if we don't do more, right? And then depending on the size of the organization, like creating a working group or getting the stakeholders together 
to, to say, is there a, so I, I see a need, but is there a desire to do anything about it? And guys, I get it. This year, this pales in comparison um, or, or the, the Great Recession and anything we've been through, we've been in this for 15 years, 2020 is going to go down as the most challenging year ever on so many levels. So we can say it or we can recognize it cognitively, but is there a desire within the organization, not just the ownership level, to make a change? And once you, once you get people to lean in even just a half a step, then you create, okay, what do we, what are, what solutions out there? What best practices? You look at the Ulta pillars, you look at what other companies that are thought leaders in the area doing, and now you come up with some, some options, right? And I think from there, you get commitment on, you, you can't boil the ocean in one pot. So you're gonna have to take this in segments. This is probably a multi-month or possibly for us, it's been a multi-year journey. We're never done. But I think you have some commitments with some timeframes, who's running the project, and then how are you measuring results? So kind of awareness, desire, what are we gonna do? And then you get into activation. Okay, we're committed to doing this, we have the budget, we're gonna find the time, there's always, because believe me guys, when you have a wire fraud, you'll find time. It'll take over your entire life for as long as it takes. So the time is there. When you have a data breach or ransomware, Believe me, the time will be found. We're saying, I think Melissa are saying, there's a way to proactively kind of work this in, but then having a, a tieback loop to say, hey, what? how do we measure success in this area? What are the results? And, and I do argue as well, Melissa, that not only do we need to get this right, but the companies that get it right will stand to benefit in spades going to the lenders, going to the referral partners like the real estate agents or other lawyers or whoever is making the phone ring and saying, you know what, I've done the work. And because we're safer, the customer and our referral partners, you're, you know, you're in a more protected ecosystem because of how we're approaching this. Well, we've it's seen that over and over. Yeah. Well, I agree. There's definitely that that resolve and that benefit that would accrue to a firm that takes this very seriously because then they can talk about how seriously they take it. But it sounds to me like the average law partner in you know just a medium-sized firm, I don't know, three or four paralegals, maybe some additional staff people that assist and help those paralegals, but it it sounds like you have to engage those people, those frontline people in the process also in, in designing what it is that your particular office is gonna do. What processes and procedures are you gonna adopt? What is workable in your particular situation? I've always felt very strongly that in order to manage someone, you really need to understand what their job is. And, and I would urge my fund members out, out there to not be cavalier about how difficult and detailed and, and sometimes tedious the job of a closer is. And you have to involve them in this discussion and get feedback from them as to what will work. You're gonna have to impose some requirements on your staff because you know what's at risk. It's basically your pocketbook. 
but it seems like you've got to get your staff's involvement. How do you feel about that? Oh, 100%, because we're not, as leaders, we're not doing the work. So we have to approach this with, I think, a, I think it takes, to your point, engagement. It takes a tremendous amount of empathy to introduce anything new right now based on just where we are. But it also takes a commitment that these people are empowered. Like, hey, I'm here to support you. This whole idea is to make sure that you're more efficient and more secure. We've seen in our organizations and others that when you do this, you get a cultural lift. They feel like the like the company has their back. They want to do a good job. These people are some of the most dedicated people I've ever seen in any industry, right? And I agree. And they, yes. And they want to do that. And 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 I think it's our opportunity. To, to come alongside and make that happen with them. And then one of the things that we do on every, every monthly staff meeting is we celebrate those people that have identified and thwarted these types of threats. Like we say, look, go Beth, you know, go Austin, go whoever happens to be. Like we shut this down, but here's how it came in and just stay on the lookout. So you can start to, you can just start to build this into the, the rhetoric, the language of the company that, yeah, we, we have accurate title commitments. We're great at clearing requirements. Our files balance. We close on time. And oh, by the way, we're a curious bunch of people that don't click on everything when, you know, the free cruise shows up in the, uh, in the inbox or the Starbucks coffee. Excellent point. All excellent. So let's, let's assume that, that law firms and title agents do everything that you're suggesting. They take on a leadership role, they create the right process within their offices, and something bad happens. What are the courts saying about this? I get this question a lot, and I just haven't had an opportunity to really go out there and, and look at the case law, but I know you're monitoring that, paying a lot of attention to it. So what are the high-level results that you're seeing come out of the courts? No, I'm glad you asked this because as an attorney, this is the most frustrating thing. And everyone knows that for you know, 100 bucks in a laser printer, everyone gets named. So we need to we need to get the, out of the idea that you you can't be named. That's not the idea. The idea is, what do you have documented from a process, procedure, and proof standpoint that shows that you met your standard of care? This is simply an evolving standard of care. So last summer, we had a Harvard intern that we were blessed to have at Certified, and Nate and I started down a path to say, what are the courts saying? And more importantly, because everyone knows 95% of the case is settled because the insurance company gets involved, and it's just not, you can't litigate over a $100,000 loss right now. I hate, I hate to say it, but you just can't. Maybe just you're going to spend seventy to 80000 to get through summary. So... What are the pleadings saying? How is it coming in? So we published a white paper. In fact, I'll share it with, we share it with a group after Melissa that dissected 150 cases where wire fraud was alleged in a real estate transaction and a case was filed. And then we went down into 15 of them and dissected, okay, what are those common denominators? What are those theories of those cases? So what's interesting is there was a very clear kind of rinse, repeat roadmap, negligence, breach of contract, breach of fiduciary, I'm going to circle back on that in a second, and then breach of consumer protection law. What was most interesting in our analysis, and this white paper shares exactly 
the claims. Because what I wanted and I shared with our team is this, the, the way that it's pled is just a roadmap of what we need to do. So if you check that off in your responsive uh, pleadings, you'll be able to say, did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, standard of care met, right? Because you don't have decisions. We have very few decisions. We have the Bain case, even the Colorado Seminole case, early days in 16 was settled. But what's interesting is most courts are starting to decide that there is a heightened standard of care. There is a fiduciary relationship when you take escrow or trust funds. So whether that's into an escrow or an IOLTO account, we've seen some pleadings where negligence, breach of contract, breach of CPL was thrown out, but they couldn't get past the idea that the fiduciary existed and that was what continued past summary. So I, I think that that's what's interesting to me, but it does provide a guide. It provides a guide. So what's that guide? You boil it all down, it's, it's simply this, right? You gotta do the technology stuff. If you're not using secure email, you don't have a policy and an InfoSec policy and disaster response re recovery policy, all those things that a third party IT firm or security firm would be able to help you with, right? That's like, you gotta check that box. But as it comes down to like the consumer, because consumers are suing the law firms and title companies for failing to do more to protect them. It's the what could you or should you have done balanced with the cost of doing it, right? Simple negligence standards. And what we've seen is early and very specific education to the consumer about the risk of wire fraud and what to expect when transferring funds. And you have to put it, well, they should know that. You have to assume a couple things. It's the first time they've ever wired money in their lives or they haven't wired money in 20 years. So let's just call it the first time again. And then what you're doing throughout the transaction to keep them engaged on what to, what to watch out for should they be tripped. Well, you can't wait for day 20 when the final CD and the closing statement is exchanged because the fraudsters could hit them on day five with an excuse, COVID or other related, where the money is actually transferred proactively, right? Much earlier in the process. You know, and then circling back and making sure that those funds are protected and, and that is communicated to, you know, communicate to the parties. But early education, and a secure exchange of those wiring instructions with proof that they received them sets you up for the best possible defense, is what I've seen. So it sounds to me like following and following and implementing all of these processes and procedures that you suggest does not avoid your being named as a defendant in the lawsuit, but it puts you in a much better position to defend against the most challenging allegation, which is around the fiduciary duty. Yeah, what, what I want to be in a position in, if in, in God forbid we're ever named, is that I want to be able to say, Your Honor, was I expected to pick them up at their house, drive them to the bank, and come back? Because short of that, it all got done. That's the standard that we're kind of holding ourselves by in our title operation, that anything possible we can do. And that also includes educating the real estate agents, right? Because they're the emails that get hacked. The lenders are the emails that get penetrated. And then we're spoofed as the title escrow and we don't even know it. And then we're named because, oh, I, yeah, I guess, I guess I didn't notify them because I didn't have final numbers or, 
you know, the real estate agent didn't give me their contact information. That, that's not going to play in court. Get it yourself and do the work to notify them because everyone is going to be held. That's the other thing. Everyone is held to account to what they did or didn't do. So in the remaining minute or two that we have, you mentioned insurance. So I want to just get your thumbnail sketch of where we are in the world of availability and viability of cyber fraud insurance, for lack of a better term. I'll just say cyber fraud insurance. What's going yeah. on there? Cyber fraud, um, two things are happening. The, the underwriters and who could have predicted business email compromise, the level of phishing, ransomware. So cyber fraud coverage is still available for the market. There's three trends, unfortunately. Higher premium, lower, um, lower coverage, and more conditions precedent. So you have to sit down and create some real life examples with your agent or your advisor saying, if that ha this happens, am I covered? And get that in writing. If this happens, am I covered? Because like anything, what the bold print giveth, the fine print immediately taketh away, right? And there's a lot of taketh away right now in conditions precedent to coverage. I think as it relates to electronic funds transfer fraud, what we would call wire fraud endorsements, that's been knuckled down. You used to be able to get a million bucks. Now you're lucky if you can scrape together 150 to 250. So we were just in market. We bound a direct policy with certified with Lloyd's. And that was one of the hardest programs that we ever put together because the, the, just the insurance markets globally are in a state of disarray. There's just so much COVID related and everything else that you know, to try to place something that, hey, I'm trying to leave wire fraud certified. You're asking me to directly insure all your customers for a million a wire. Yes, it's the right thing to do. And I can show you how we can mitigate that. But that's the concern. So I would encourage everyone. It's not just price and deductible. You have to understand that if you're comparing different proposals, what is that overlay of coverage? And does it dovetail into your processes? So my analogy is a block of Swiss cheese. If you cut the block up, you got a bunch of holes in it. You put it together and you can't see through it. You gotta have, make sure that your insurance and your processes do not have any gaps because those gaps don't work in your favor. Those gaps are simply denial of coverage. Interesting. Although it still sounds to me like the most important thing is your processes and procedures because insurance is going to remain a challenge for the yeah. next several years in terms of just being able to get the coverage that you need. Yep, 100%. Let's avoid it altogether. That's the best, yeah. that's the best yeah, medicine. That's the best policy. You, you never want to use your insurance. No. <laughs> one well, and Tom done. Weir. It's a one and done policy. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. That's what a lot of people are concerned about. Yeah. Well, Tom, we have run out of time. Uh, thank you again for helping us with this very, very important problem that's facing the industry and giving us um, some information and feedback and, and suggestions apart from just statistics and depressing numbers. So for that, I appreciate <laughs> No, I applaud. This is great. I, I applaud the approach on this talk. I, I hope everyone at least left with one thing or, or validated one thing that they're on the pathway of doing. And if we can help in any way, you know, we're here. So. Right. Absolutely. 
So let me, re uh, let me thank everybody for attending today. Let me remind you that we're gonna push this out on the podcast. Join me for next month's title now. I don't know who the guest and very exciting topic will be yet, but I will certainly let you know. And as always, thank you for your support of the fund.